Well, my name is Jonathan, and I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here at North Central. Thanks so much for being here and uh, for joining us online as well. We're so grateful for you guys, and we're excited that you're with us. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but the Christmas season is officially upon us, right? All the, all the signs are there. Thanksgiving is over. We can officially be done with being thankful. And uh, we're moving on to Christmas, and we're moving on to a new series here at North Central called Gifts of Grace. And for me, easily, uh, one of my very favorite parts about this time of year is, besides the food, is this renewed energy around singing together. There's, there's something about Christmas carols, isn't there, that just hits a little bit differently. And I think part of it is uh, nostalgia. You know, they're kind of the same songs we've been singing since childhood. So they really do bring back a lot of memories. And I think part of it is the kind of communal aspect of them because there's this added confidence around singing them because everyone knows how they go. In fact, to prove that out, okay, we're going to do a little Christmas song trivia. All right? You guys are ready. So this is how this will work. I'll, I'll get us started. And then, and then when I point to you, you, you finish the line, okay? We'll go from, we'll go from easy to kind of a little bit more difficult as we go. By the way, don't, don't get upset with me if, if not all these songs are churchy, okay? I don't want to frost anybody's Christmas cookies over this. All right, let's, let's, let's try it. Here we go. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light from now on our Nice. Oh, good. That was really good. All right, another one. Silent night, holy night. Beautiful. I almost want to keep going, right? You know how the next line is... Um, Round yon virgin? Well, one of my kids. Don't, don't ask around as to which one, okay? Because this is a little bit embarrassing, so don't ask. But one of my kids, until they were about 10 years old, would sing Round yon virgin. <laughs> Round yon virgin. And we never told them. We never, we didn't even, because I think if we told them, then they'd, we'd have some explaining to do. Um, so Mary just stayed a round virgin. Daddy, what's a virgin? I don't, I don't know. Ask your mother. Ask your mother. I, I have no idea what that is. <clears throat> All right, a couple more. Um, let's see. How's this go? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. That's so good. Why have I never heard you guys sing this well? I mean, tell me more about this Jack Frost fellow. I mean, that's... You're like, Jesus, something or other. Jack Frost, <laughs> nipping at your nose. All right, last one. I think this is the toughest one. Yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The... Are met in thee tonight. Now... 
That is an interesting lyric, and we're going to talk about this today. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that one. I honestly hadn't until kind of recently. Um, Maybe because we kind of think of old little town of Bethlehem as maybe more of a kid's sort of a tune. But here's the beauty of uh, the beauty of so many carols. It's that they're just brimming, right? They're overflowing with the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But here's the thing with this one. I, I think we can easily wrap our minds around why Jesus's birth would be hopeful, right? It's filled with hope, the hope of all the years. And, and we're going to get to that. But what about fear? It's like, hang on a second. Like, I, I thought Jesus brought nothing but, but hope. Why would fear be involved, right? What is there even to be fearful of? How could, you know, he be both hope and fear for all the years? And here's how I think that is. It's because the coming of Jesus the King is the coming of a rival to the throne of your life. It's the coming of a rival to the throne of your life. And we're going to kind of really follow this fear and hope motif this morning And we'll talk about exactly that. The fear of a king and the hope of a king. Okay? The fear of a king and the hope of a king. So let's look at our text for today, okay? If you guys have your Bibles, you have your phones. Micah, this is chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. It says, Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader, in the face with a rod. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratha, yeah. <laughs> I think, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. <clears throat> the people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then, at last, his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and break through our defenses, we will appoint seven rulers to watch over us, eight princes to lead us. Okay, so here's what we're going to talk about first. The fear of a king. The fear of a king. All right, so I think it's helpful to get a little background on the book of Micah. Okay, the book of Micah. And I think that's going to help us kind of understand what's happening here. Micah lived in a small town in the southern kingdom of Judah, right around the same time as Isaiah, roughly 700 years before Jesus was born. And both the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdom of Israel had split a long time before that, and both had been naughty. Like, they're really violating their covenant with God. And I don't know if you remember, but God had made an agreement with Israel that he would be their God, and that they would be his people. But they were supposed to worship him, right? Him alone. Him alone. And, and they're also supposed to follow his laws. But they're failing really badly at that, miserably. So here's Micah's warning. He says, God's going to bring 
uh, the big bad empire of Assyria. And, and they're going to come and they're going to take out the northern kingdom and they're going to just ravage Jerusalem. And then he warned that after Assyria, another kingdom, Babylon, would come and they would bring even greater destruction. So not good, right? Bad news. And don't forget that Micah's speaking on God's behalf here. He actually puts it this way in chapter 3. He says, I'm filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, with, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so most of the book really uh, explores Micah's, God's accusations and warnings of God's judgment that was coming to Israel. But here's what's cool. Micah also had a message of hope that really kind of countered the warnings. And it was about the restoration that God would bring on the other side of judgment. Okay, and even how he was going to do it, which is what we'll get to. So the book opens with this, in chapter 1, with this like wild description of God appearing over Israel. Very similar to how he did uh, at Mount Sinai. Okay, so there's fire, and there's smoke, and there's an earthquake. But this guy, this time, God has not come to make a, a covenant. He's not come to make an agreement. He says, no, I'm here to bring judgment on you this time. You guys have rebelled for 500 years. No more of that. So Micah goes on to name all these towns and cities in Israel that, that are really are the culprits of all this rebellion. God is coming for them. We kind of like that, I think, right? You better watch out. Like, God's coming for you. It's like, it's like the old Johnny Cash song, right? Tell him that God's going to cut him down. And I think they were right. They were right to be afraid. Because check out some of the imagery here in chapter 1. You, I won't um, put this up, but you can turn to it if you have it. Chapter 1 of Micah. This is what God says he's going to do. He says, attention, let all the people of the world listen. Let the earth and everything in it hear. The sovereign Lord is making accusations against you, Israel. The Lord speaks from his holy temple. Now listen to this. He said, look, the Lord's coming. He's leaving his throne in heaven, and he tramples the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. And why is this happening? Because of the rebellion of Israel. Yes, the sins of the whole nation. Who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria, its capital city. Where is the center of idolatry in Judah? It, it's in Jerusalem, its capital. So I, the Lord, will make city, the city of Samaria a heap of ruins. Her streets will be plowed up for planting vineyards. I'll roll the stones of her walls into the valley below, exposing her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed. All her sacred treasures will be burned. These things were brought, these things were bought with the money earned by her prostitution, and they will now be carried away to pay prostitutes elsewhere. That's quite the image. So what's happening here? God says they've become wealthy through theft and through greed. But it's not just the leaders. It's also the prophets. God's mouthpieces, his prophets, have fallen into corruption. And here's what they're doing. These guys are offering promises of God's protection to anyone who could afford to pay them. So basically deceit, right, and bribery, and, and you know, it kind of sounds like maybe some TV preachers. I mean, God have mercy on those folks, because apparently he doesn't like 
when you manipulate and take advantage of the poor. So Micah says, no more agreements. God's withdrawn his protection from Israel. You guys have been running the land through bribery. You're bending justice to favor the wealthy. The poor are deprived of their land, their security, their hope. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of these oppressive nations that are going to come in, right? Babylon, Assyria. But here's what's so incredible. These warnings of God's judgment are always followed by a message of hope. This is a theme in all the books of the prophets. So pay close attention here because what I'm going to describe is actually our future. Okay, this is for you and I. This isn't just for some long-dead ancient people, okay? This is the new Jerusalem. Where, where's the new Jerusalem? Well, it's, it's actually going to be on a restored earth. So God says that through Micah, this won't be a permanent destruction, but one day he's going to come and he's going to rebuild Jerusalem, and he's going to rebuild its temple, and even better yet, he's going to fill it with his presence, and he's going to fill the city with a remnant of his people. Who's that? It's us, you and I. So here's what God's up to. His purpose here is to make Israel this sort of, let's call it like a meeting place, okay, of heaven and earth that, that all nations one day will stream to this, this new Jerusalem. And that's where God becomes the true and final king of all the nations. And finally, peace comes to the earth. Now check this out. This is where it gets really good. This is chapter 5, which we read from a minute ago. And in it, we learn that this new Jerusalem, this messianic king, this savior king from the line of David will come. And he'll be born in Bethlehem. That's what Micah says here. And then eventually he'll rule in this new Jerusalem over the restored people of God, you and I. Okay, does that make sense? So the, the book of Micah is really a beautiful picture of God's very rich mercy and very rich hope. It's, it's incredible. But you can kind of understand why some would be fearful. And again, they're right to fear. In Micah, God's judgment for all their bad behavior and their corruption and love of money and cheating, stealing from the poor, that's coming. That judgment's coming. It's on its way. Right? These foreign countries are going to come in. But there's something more important happening here, and I don't want us to miss this. The coming of the king, the coming of the king, like, like Micah says in chapter 5, he calls him this ancient one whose origins are from the distant past. He was going to be a rival to whatever was on the throne of their hearts. Okay? Catch that. Really catch that. That's, it, he's not saying it, it, it's about land, like, you know, I'm going to come to take your land like these foreign countries are, or their wealth. It's actually something far more serious than that, far more important than that. Why? Because Jesus came to unseat or to dethrone whatever we've made ultimate in our lives. And there are those that really fear that. So this greatest message that... that, that Really, greatest message of hope that the world has ever, ever known. The Savior King is here. He's coming. That proclamation is actually loaded with fear. 
for some. Why? Because if he's on the throne, then I'm, I'm not. So, just as an example here, let me, let me tell you the story of one of the most frightened people, one of the most insecure people the world has ever known. There's a guy that appears in uh, Matthew's telling of Jesus' birth. It's in Matthew chapter 2. His name is Herod. And I'm sure you've heard this, but when the Magi are looking for Jesus, they stop by Herod's palace to find out where the newborn uh, king of the Jews is. And, and when Herod hears that term, king of the Jews, he's very interested. Because there's only one king of the Jews, and as far as he's concerned, it's him. So what he does is he lies, he tells the Magi, hey, when you find him, <clears throat> certainly let me know where he is, because I'd like to go worship him as well. Well, obviously we know what he really wanted to do was kill him. Well, when that didn't work, Herod said, fine, here's what we're going to do. Let's kill all of Bethlehem's boys. That's how paranoid, that's how fearful he was. He's willing to commit thousands of murders of children to guarantee that he stays on the throne. Now, one of the things that I really love about these stories is that even though the Bible doesn't include all the details of its characters, they're real people. And since they're real people, you can go back. You can check out the history books and find out more about who these people actually really were. Well, here's who Herod was. Herod's so fearful, he's so paranoid of losing his throne that not only did he kill the babies of Bethlehem, he had six of his own family members killed. This is what the, the history books say, including his wife, his brother-in-law, and his sons. Listen to this. Just before Herod died, he invited a number of prominent citizens. These are like the leaders of the, the city to this special event that he's going to hold, right? And here's what he tells them there. He says that after I die, he's like basically on his deathbed here. He says, after I die, I'm going to have all of you killed. And the reason he did that was because he hoped that all the mourning in the streets would make it appear like people were mourning for him. Now here's the irony. The irony is that he pushed away the one thing that he really desired, right? Which was love. He wanted to be loved. But he's so afraid of not being loved that he pushes it away from all the people he wants it from. His community, his family, his wife, most importantly his God. Ultimately, he loses what he really wanted, what he longed for. Instead, he chooses control. <clears throat> and here's kind of where I wish we could wrap up the, the sad story of Herod's life with like a little Merry Christmas, you know, don't be like Herod. I mean, I mean that's pretty easy to pull off. Like, that's, that's low-hanging fruit. Just don't kill everyone around you, and you'll be better than Herod. But the ultimate problem for Herod is that he's unwilling to share his throne, and in a lot of ways, so am I. So am I. So are you. Why? Because every time we're fearful, every time we're worried about something, every, every time we doubt God, we're trying to control the situations in our lives. Why? Because we just don't know what's coming next. We're not totally convinced that God can be trusted. Right? So I think what we're, what we're saying is that we know best. We know best. And, and that kingship, the kingship of our lives really belongs to us. 
How about when we can't forgive each other? You know, when we can't let go of the past, or, or maybe we even understand that God forgives us, but we can't forgive ourselves, and we just resist. We resist giving lordship to Jesus. Why? Because the coming of the king is the coming of a rival, the coming of a rival to the throne of our lives. Does that make sense? And so the, the, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. God, you can have anything. You can have anything, just not that. Not that. We've got, the, we've got kind of the same problem as the rich young ruler. Remember him? Lord, just tell me what to do to inherit eternal life, and I'll do it. Just tell me what it is. And, and you remember what Jesus said? He says, go, go sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And the guy was crushed. He's crushed by that. Did Jesus really care about his stuff? No. What he wanted was lordship. What he wanted was the throne of his life. Oh, but not my, not my work, right? Not my money, not my comfort, not my security, not my sexuality. Meanwhile, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus the king is saying, you're kind of in my seat, right? This one that, that Micah's talking about here in chapter 5, this, this king who, whose origins are from the distant past, the creator, the sustainer of the universe. Man, if we could just bear to let him sit in his rightful place, what an incredible weight that would be off of us. Why? Because we're not meant to sit there. But that's exactly what he came to do. And that's exactly where our hope lies. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the hope of a king. So if the coming of Jesus the king is the coming of a rival to the throne of our lives, there's a, there's a flip side to that. There's another side of that coin, and it's this. The coming of Jesus the king is the arrival of hope to sustain your life. There's a, there's a terrific story about um, a conversation between J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis while Lewis was teaching at Maudlin College in Oxford. And there's this, uh, there's this kind of this tree-covered path that goes around the campus there, and it's like alongside of a stream and very beautiful and idyllic. And Tolkien and Lewis uh, would often walk together, and they would have these conversations on this path. And uh, Lewis had been an atheist for really the better part of his life up to this point, but he was just kind of beginning to soften, right? Just beginning to soften and start to believe in God. And so they're walking down this path. It's September 19th, 1931. And the conversation turns to myths and legends, two kind of topics that these two guys really know a lot about. They're masters of that. The great stories of the past, myths and legends. And there's like these, you know, stories of antiquity, right? Where there's gods and goddesses and kings, great kings and queens. And I'm actually going to pick up the story here as told by a man named James Emery White. Listen to this. He says, as a boy, Lewis had loved the great Norse stories of a dying god, Baldur. And as a man, he grew to love and appreciate the power of myth through the history of language and literature. But he didn't believe in them. Beautiful and moving though they might be, they were, uh, he concluded, ultimately untrue. And as, as he expressed to Tolkien, he said, uh, myths and lies are therefore worthless. 
even though breathed through silver. (laughs) That's an interesting way to put that. Myths are lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver, even though they're beautiful. No, said Tolkien, they are not lies. And this is cool. Later, Lewis recalled that at the moment Tolkien uttered those words, a rush of wind came so suddenly on the still warm evening and sent so many leaves pattering down that we thought it was raining. He says, we held our breath. Tolkien's point was that the great myths might just reflect a splintered fragment of the true light. Within the myth, there was something of an eternal truth. So they talk on, and Lewis became convinced by the force of Tolkien's argument. They returned to Lewis's rooms. Once there, they turned their conversation to Christianity. Here, Tolkien argued that the poet who invented the story was none other than God himself. And the images that he used were real men and women and actual history. It says Lewis was floored. He says, do you mean that the death and resurrection of Christ is the old dying God story all over again? Yes, Tolkien answered, except here is the real dying God with a precise location and history and definite historical consequences. The old myth has become fact. So joining, uh, such joining of faith and intellect had never occurred to Lewis. It was now 3 a.m., and Tolkien had to go home. Lewis ex- escorts him down the stairs. It says, 12 days later, Lewis wrote to his close boyhood friend, Arthur Greaves. Here's what he says. He says, I've just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ, in Christianity. I'll try to explain this another time. My long night talk with Tolkien had a good deal to do with it. Now, very interesting. And I think there's something very deep inside of us that desperately wants a king. I really believe that. And I don't mean a king in the human sense. Like, history shows us repeatedly that that's not a great way to do things, right? Because we're human beings, right? And that kind of power, ultimate authority, it really twists us into knots. It can ruin us. What I'm talking about here is a God king. Just like Lewis encountered through these old myths and these legends, he found ultimately they're pointing to Jesus. So it makes sense here that Israel was waiting for a God king. After all, God had promised it to them, right? We see it right in our text today, Micah 5. God clearly is saying he's going to send a ruler on his behalf from Bethlehem. And that uh, even though destruction, the destruction of Jerusalem is on the way, there's still hope. But I think what's also interesting that when when, um, God delivers on that promise, right, he sends his son, the people don't, don't recognize him. Not even close. Why? Because they're expecting a king. Not a baby, not a carpenter, not a Sabbath breaker. Right? Not someone who kind of hangs out with the questionables of society, right? the prostitute, the tax collector. No way this is our guy. Like, Where's the, the warrior king that, that, that is promised that's going to help deliver us from Rome and overthrow Rome and put us in power? And Jesus says, oh, you've got it all wrong. Got it all wrong. You've missed it. I didn't come here to deliver you from Rome. I came to deliver you from sin and from the death that it causes. So how, how would he do it? How's he going to do that? 
In a few minutes, we're going to take um, communion together uh, just to make sure that we remember how. But Jesus the King would die at the very hands of the Romans that the Jews were hoping to overthrow. Isn't that interesting? Come help us overthrow Rome. Instead, Jesus dies at their hands. But through his death, through his resurrection, he's going to inaugurate, he's going to kick off not a nation, not a nation, but a kingdom. A kingdom, one that's never going to fail, one that's never going to be overthrown. Nothing like the kingdom that they're thinking of. The promise here in Micah 5 is talking about a glorious future for the followers of Christ. I want to look at it again very quickly. Verse 3, it says, The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last, his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord. Then his people will live there in Jerusalem undisturbed. For he will be highly honored around the world and he will be the source of peace. You know what that's talking about? That's not present-day Jerusalem. That's a new Jerusalem. That's a city that God says one day will descend out of heaven and it will reunite heaven and earth. No more separation. It's just about the most stunning and miraculous promise that could ever happen. A few weeks ago, I, uh, I came across a song that really shook me. Uh, it's Saturday morning. We're in the kitchen making breakfast. My wife's already laughing at me because she knows what's coming. I'm making French toast. Brioche bread, of course, because I don't know if you know this, because when you make French toast, you need a bread that has a lot of egg in it. Do you guys know that? That's, a, that's something to, to, to take note of. To make a proper French toast, you want a bread that has a lot of egg in it. And then you, what do you do? You kind of dip it in like a beautiful milky custard, right? An egg custard. And I like to put vanilla extract in there, maybe a little bit of cinnamon. Fry it off in butter right on a hot cast iron pan. That's not the point of this story. I, I have no idea why I'm talking about that. <clears throat> but this song comes on, and uh, I've never heard it before. It's called New Jerusalem, and it's by John Guerra. If you want to look it up, G-U-E-R-R-A, John Guerra. And, it, and the song is this sort of like poetic description of our future, our future on the new earth and in the new Jerusalem. And as the lyrics start to play out, I realize that I'm in trouble emotionally. Like, I, I'm in trouble. Like, I've got this lump that's starting to, to happen in my throat, and I, and I really am starting to feel the, the tears well up. Let me read you the, the lyrics quickly. This is so poetic and beautiful. It says, Somewhere we know but haven't been, like a song forgotten, a place prepared beyond the end, our home in New Jerusalem, a palace made of promises, a garden, and a fortress. A world that's built on what you said, our home in New Jerusalem. Standing there in purest light, with no more pain and no more night, he holds the tears her eyes have cried, the bride of New Jerusalem. 
who filled with love would give his life to save his one and only bride, whose name is true and lifted high, the king of new Jerusalem. And it says, his will is done, his kingdom come, eternity has just begun. The multitude will sing as one the song of new Jerusalem, a music free from bars or time, a symphony of his design, the Lamb of God enthroned on high, the hope of new Jerusalem. Now that song isn't even three quarters of the way through, and I've got a kitchen towel, okay? In Italian households, we call it a muppine, all right? I've got a muppine over my face, and I've lost it, like shoulders shaking, ugly crying into this towel. I cannot pull it together. Megan sees me and goes, hey, don't burn the French toast. What? <laughs> what are you doing, you dumb dumb? <laughs> but you know why I lost it? Because I'm tired of being the, I'm tired of being the king of my own life. My heart longs for a place I know but have never been. With Jesus as king over a glorious and peaceful world with no more sadness, and no more pain, and no more death. I'm talking about a new earth, right, that's been restored and it's been made right with all of creation from the sequoia tree to the blue well, just completely free of the curse. Are you seriously talking about the new earth again, JV? Yes, yes I am, because it fills my life with hope. It fills my life with hope. It's real. It's true. It's our future. And if there's anything I know about God, it's that he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. We can count on him to, to keep his promises. Listen, gang, one day Jesus is coming back. Jesus the king is coming back and every other throne is going to melt away. Including the ones that we sit on. He's a rival to the throne of our lives. He's the only one who can properly be seated there. And that's what makes him our greatest hope. So what can we do? Is there some technique that can help us see Jesus both as our king and as our greatest hope? There's a couple things very quickly. First thing, look back and remember. Look back and remember. It's so vitally important. I find it so helpful to look back at the promises of God and how he's been so faithful to us, to himself, to his word. And the significance of looking back isn't just uh, for the sake of it, right? But it's also to inspire hope for the future. How do I know all this stuff about uh, the king of New Jerusalem and, and the new earth is real and that it's on its way? It's by, it's by looking back. Why? Because I know that if God's been true to his word in the past, he'll be true to his word in the future. And the future is filled with incredible promises. So I want to just very quickly as an example, I want to take a look back at a couple of promises kept. By God. They've all been kept. <laughs> and 
and are being kept. But I want to look at a few. And if we just look at the Old Testament prophecy, okay, um, perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, there's no doubt. There can be no doubt. This gives me an awful lot of confidence and hope. And, and, and don't forget, I'm going to kind of read these off, but don't forget that um, these are written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. I'm just going to name a few, but there's over 300 of these. Old Testament prophecy about a Savior King that is fulfilled in Jesus. Listen to this. A descendant of Abraham, Genesis 12. In the line of David, 2 Samuel 7. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. Born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, which we just did. Called a Nazarene, Isaiah 11. Spoke in parables, Psalm 78. Betrayed, Psalm 41. Falsely accused, Psalm 35. Silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53. Crucified with criminals, Isaiah 53. A sacrifice for sin, Isaiah 53. Hands and feet pierced, Psalm 22. Zechariah 12. Pierced in the side, Zechariah 12. Mocked and ridiculed, Psalm 22. Forsaken by God, Psalm 22. Resurrected from the grave, Psalm 16 and Psalm 49. Ascended into heaven, Psalm 24. Seated at the right hand of God, Psalm 68 and Psalm 110. All of that is perfectly fulfilled in one person. Boy, does that give me confidence. Boy, does that give me hope to look back regularly and reflect on the promises of God fulfilled perfectly in Christ. The second way we let our hope grow is this. Look forward and anticipate. It's helpful to look back. No question. No question about that. But don't stop there. We go through this exercise of Advent, right? This period of waiting where we anticipate Jesus being born. And it's beautiful, and it's helpful, but it only takes my heart so far. Jesus was born. He lived perfectly in my place. He died the death meant for me. We'll remember that shortly here in communion. What else? He's, re- he's resurrected, right? That resurrection life now courses through me. Why is that? Because the Bible says he's the first fruits. Right? He's the first installment on a resurrection that's to come, and it's ours. Yours and mine, right? This is our future, guys. We should be anticipating that. Not only that, but, but like we've already mentioned, he's coming to establish a kingdom. Where? In heaven? No, heaven's coming to earth. The new Jerusalem is coming down, and Jesus the King will rule and reign on the earth. And guess what? We'll reign with him. With every fiber of my being, I believe that. I so believe that. No more sickness, no more sadness, no more pain, no more regrets, no more guilt, no more shame, no more wrestling with God for the throne of our lives. Let me encourage you, set your eyes on that. Set your eyes on that. Hope for that. Anticipate that. It'll change your present. It will change your present because there'll be nothing 
that you can't face. Let's pray together.